that in your light we may see light, in your truth we may find freedom, and in your will we would discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's the second time that Dom read through that passage. did really well, I thought. You know. and, and similarly, they told us, if you're not sure of a name or a place, say it with confidence and move past it quickly. So... Uh, now, you might be wondering, why is uh, Doug starting off an Advent sermon series with a genealogy from, from Matthew? I mean, we, we hear that, that list of names read, and there's only but a few of them that we really recognize. A lot of odd-sounding names. What, what does this have to do with, with us and our lives and with Advent and Christmas and, and all that? Well, I believe that uh, Matthew began his gospel uh, these are the first words in the New Testament. I, I believe he began them uh, for a simple reason. You see, genealogies were very, very important to, uh, to the Jewish people. It, it gave them a sense of who your people were, what tribe you came from, and whether or not you were 100% Jewish, a part of God's chosen people. So a genealogy would have been very, very important to a Jewish person. Matthew, as we know, was a, a Jewish man. And and, and Matthew, being a Jewish man, would have had a heart and a burden for his people to know and accept and believe that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. That Jesus Christ, in fact, was descended in the line of David and fulfilled all of the promises that God had made to his people. And so Matthew begins his, his gospel with this genealogy to prove that Jesus was, in Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel. Do you remember the movie... um, King Ralph, maybe a few of you, if you're, maybe you're not embarrassed to admit King. King Ralph was a movie that came out, I don't know, 10, 15, I don't know, years ago. Uh, and, and the premise of the movie was this. The royal family of England gathered together for a big family portrait. And a freak accident happens and they're all electrocuted on the spot, all dead. And so the English people have to search back in the records to find the hundred person, person or so who is in the line of the royal family. And it happens to be a man named Ralph who's an American, kind of a working-class, average Joe, played by John Goodman. Sounds silly, but it was important to the English people at that time to prove that the person who would take the throne was indeed, in fact, royal blood. And that's what Matthew is, is starting, why he starts the gospel this way. But, but it has more to do than that. There's a lot more for us to, to apply as we work our way through this section. Um, there's a lot of application for our lives in the 21st century. Because more than just telling us who Jesus was and, and where he came from, which was important, this genealogy and these verses give us a picture of God's work in our lives, in our world. Let me explain. Starting at verse 17, we'll read this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So here we go. We have three sort of movements, paragraphs, with 14 names each, three different times. It might be helpful for us to think of these three paragraphs, these three movements in the genealogy, three sections, um, to think of it sort of like a line graph uh, or maybe sort of like a stock market uh, report that charts the, charting the fortunes of the people of Israel. Uh, there's, a, there's an up and there's a down and then there's an up again. It begins with verse 2, and that's the first paragraph of names with Abraham, and it rises up to this high point in Israel's life when King David is on the throne at the height of their, their national glory. In the next movement, it, it plummets downward and bottoms out in the, the Babylonian captivity. And in the third movement, we see it rising again 
from the Babylonian captivity up to the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. So, as we walk through these three movements, we're going to look at different dimensions of the nature of God. Uh, who comes to us in Jesus Christ? We're going to see the mercy of God. We'll see the, the judgment of God. We'll see the faithfulness of God. And then finally and wonderfully, we'll see the redemption of God. So let's begin with the first movement, verses 1 through the first part of 6, where it shows the mercy of God. Abraham to David. Now, the most striking thing about this, this first section, this first paragraph, so to speak, is the mention of the names of four women. It's very unusual in, in Jewish genealogy back in the day to mention women. And, and if you did, it was usually a woman who was uh, a noble woman uh, or, or, or a famous woman for her purity or her bravery or something like that. And so, for example, we'd expect if Matthew was going to include women in his genealogy, he would include women like Sarah or Rebecca or, or Rachel, kind of heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, the wives of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, their husbands are mentioned here, and, and they would lend a certain prestige to the lineage of Jesus, sort of like you know, if we were descended from the Mayflower pilgrims. We would want to make sure and emphasize that in our family tree. But instead of those three great women, look at some of the women who are included in the genealogy. We see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Two of these women aren't even Jewish at all. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite woman. Why would these women be included in Jesus' genealogy? Well, I think what Matthew is trying to communicate to us is that God's love is bigger than the, the Jewish race. God's love is bigger than gender or, or race or ethnicity. That Jesus is the Savior of all people. That Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. That he is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Remember the promise back in Genesis 12? Through you, all the nations, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Matthew shows us that the blood of two Gentile mothers coursed through the blood of the Savior of the world. But these women who are included, three of them are known more for what they've done wrong than what they've done right. For example, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. We don't exactly hold these women up as, as role models for the, the young women in our youth group. I mean, listen to what they were involved with. Tamar, probably the least known of the three, tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into having a child by her. And the child from that incestuous relationship became a grandfather of the Messiah. Rahab, we know her story from Joshua, prostitute in the, in the city of Jericho. And the fourth woman is so scandalous that Matthew does not mention her by name. Who is she? Verse 6 says, and David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Remember the story? Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, married to Uriah. David's the king. He sees her. He wants her. He has an affair with her. She gets pregnant. He arranges for her husband, Uriah, to be killed. She is even mentioned here in Jesus' genealogy, a distant grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's as though Matthew has scoured the lineage of Jesus in order to highlight and find the seediest women he could find. Why? Because God's love is bigger than our sin, bigger than my sin, your sin. God's love embraces us even in our sinfulness. And even in the genealogies of the Bible, they drip with the grace and the love and the forgiveness 
of Jesus Christ. Now, lest you think I'm picking on the women in Jesus' family tree, look at some of the men. It begins with Abraham, who more than once lied like Pinocchio to save his neck. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, was slicker than a Las Vegas card shark. He cheated his brother. He cheated his uncle. He's in the list leading to Christ. Jacob's son, Judah, was the father of Perez and Zerah. But you remember how that happened? By committing incest with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And we see Judah mentioned here. Remember Judah? He and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery and told his father that, that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Manasseh makes the list. Even though this wicked king sacrificed his own son in the fire to Baal and consulted mediums and spiritists, he shed so much innocent blood that in 2 Kings 21 it says he was a terror to his own people. A lot of the guys in this list are kings. Half of them, or about half of them are crooks, and all but a handful of them worships an idol or two for good measure. Quite the family tree. Let's apply it to ourselves. Suppose you could pick your family tree. Sort of like you go out and pick a Christmas tree. What kind of family tree, what kind of pedigree, what sort of things would you emphasize, want to be able to emphasize? Uh, would you pick an adulterer and a, and a murderer and a prostitute, unwed mothers, w- cheaters, deceivers? Probably not. But Jesus Christ, as a baby boy, when he came from heaven, he picked his own pedigree. And look what he chose. An ordinary human family with sinners and saints mixed together. He didn't fall out of heaven like a meteor. He was born into a very real world of a very messed up, mixed up human family. And unlike Jesus Christ, we don't get to pick our own family, do we? And some of us might be in the midst of a, of a messed up human family right now. We wonder, does God understand the pain I have for my family? Maybe because of my family. Does God feel the hurt that I hurt for my family and, and loved ones? The answer in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is yes, <laughs> Jesus does understand because he has been there in, in Jesus Christ. God has been there in Jesus Christ. You know, some of us might think that we're permanently damaged, that the mistakes we've made in our lives in the past have disqualified us from being a part of God's family. That is a lie from Satan. It's the truth is, is that no one is unsalvageable. The truth is that Christ's death on the cross and his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our mistakes, all of our flaws. His blood is powerful enough to wipe away any sin. Some of us might think, well, I can be saved. That's nice, but I can never be used powerfully by God. Uh, I'm destined to an average life and should just be thankful that I'm included in God's family. And yes, you should be thankful. But as we read this list, we take away from it that God can use even scoundrels to accomplish his will in this plan. God's mercy, we see in this first movement of Christ's genealogy, is immeasurable and is offered to all. And, and God can work in the midst of, of the worst and through the worst of family trees and family situations. Next section, verses 6 through 11. This genealogy from David to the Babylonian captivity shows us the judgment of God. We're going to kind of zoom down for a little bit here. Now, at the beginning of paragraph two, Israel's riding high. They're on the brink of, of paradise. 1000 B.C., David is at the height of his reign. But all of a sudden, everything falls apart, everything crumbles. And we see in verse 11, 
that when Jeconiah was the king, just a few years later, Israel's put in chains and carried off into exile. What happened? Why did this all fall? What, what caused the precipitous decline? Well, for the answer, we listen to a voice from the Old Testament, the prophet Amos, who says this in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. What happened? Why did this fall apart? They divorced their religious practice from concern for the poor, the least of these, the lonely, the oppressed, the orphaned. The problem wasn't that Israel didn't go to church very often. Religion was sort of the indoor sport in Israel. Again, we turn to Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. For you love to do this, O people of Israel. Now, from reading these verses, you might surmise that Bethel and Gilgal were sort of their version of Sin City, but that's far from the truth. They were places of worship where the Israelites would go to offer sacrifices and to give offerings. Why did God have a problem with this? They had forgotten the poor, the lonely, the disenfranchised, the oppressed. You see, a theme throughout Scripture is that God is very, very interested in the plight of the poor and very, very interested in the response of his people to the needs of others. In fact, if there is no compassionate response to those less fortunate than us, God calls into question our our religion. Listen to Micah, another Old Testament prophet. He, God, has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's kind of put together, let's kind of shrink down the world for a minute. Let's say the world was shrunk down to a village of 100 people. Let's throw out some statistics. One third would be rich or of modest income, like ourselves. Two thirds would be in poverty. Of the 100 residents of this village, one would have been to college. 35 would suffer hunger and malnutrition. 50 would be either homeless or living in a shack. Eight would be practicing communist. 35 would live under communist rule. 30 would be Christians. Just under 50 would have heard of Christ. Just over 50 would have heard of Lenin, Marx, and Stalin. Of the hundred, six would be Americans. And we six would have one-third of all the income in that village. The other 94 would split up and subsist on the other two-thirds. And every year, we six Americans would spend $86 on defense and only 40 cents on spreading the gospel of Christ. Now, when you hear those statistics, what are your thoughts and feelings? What do you think God's thoughts, our feelings, would be? God judges our faith by our response to the needs of the poor and the lonely and the weak and the oppressed. And in paragraph two of Matthew's genealogy, we see the downward slide of Israel as a nation into oblivion because despite all of their religious activity, 
They demonstrated no concern for the poor. To put it simply, the mercy they had received from Abraham to David did not lead to mercy for others around them. Next section, verses 12 through 17. The genealogy from the Babylonian captivity to Christ shows us the faithfulness of God. So it begins to turn around here. There was one thing that all 42 of the people in these three paragraphs had in common. They were all waiting. The promise came to Abraham. Through you, all people will be blessed. Then it came to David. Your seed will be established forever, and your throne will be all, for all generations. And yet the people waited. Like a, like a sentry scanning the, the horizon for the first light of dawn, or a, or a child waiting on tippy-toe for Christmas morning. Generation after generation after generation, still no Messiah. And so they wait some more and they keep the genealogy straight to keep track of who might come and who could be the Messiah. Remember in Scripture, they even rush off and they ask John the Baptist, are you the one, are you the Christ who is to come? Because remember, John the Baptist would have fit fit the, the bill. He was Jesus' cousin. He would have been in Jesus' family tree. He would have been in the line of King David. It wasn't him. They were hunger, they were hungry, they were eager, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. You know, some of us this morning are waiting. We're waiting for God to do something, to move in our lives in power because we're in a situation of misery or pain or sorrow or heartache or loss or confusion or, or maybe doubt. And we're tired of waiting and we wonder, how long, O oh Lord, is God really faithful to his people and to his, his promises? Well, he is. We have to trust that God will move in his way, in his time, in his own will. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tell us when the time had fully come. Not when we thought it was time and not when we got sick of waiting. It says, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. In other words, so that we can be a part of God's family tree. Because Christ came at Christmas, it no longer depends upon your connections or your your bloodline. It now depends upon your faith line. Have you put your trust in Christ? All that matters now because of Christmas is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means for us is it doesn't matter a whit to God uh, what church your parents attended or whether your dad or mom was an elder or a deacon or a pastor. What matters is can you say the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my savior, and I've trusted in him. By faith in Christ, we can become part of God's family tree. John 1.12 promises us this. For as many as receive him, to them he gave power to become children of God who are born not of blood, but of God. In other words, born of faith by God through his spirit. You know, someday all of us are simply going to be a memory in the minds of our grandchildren. Kind of a cheery thought. Um, and then we're going to be the, a name in a faded family Bible. And then finally, we're going to be forgotten altogether in this world. And all that will matter then is, are we remembered in the mind of God? Are we in the faith line of Jesus' family tree? 
By faith, we can become children of God, co-heirs with Christ, part of God's family forever. The last thing, real briefly, that we learn from this Christmas genealogy is that with Christ we can have a new beginning. I, I don't have to stay where I am. I don't have to remain who I am. I can have a fresh start, a new beginning. You know, looking at this list of, of names, this genealogy of Jesus, we can perhaps identify with some of the things we see here. Maybe we can identify with some of the sexual temptations and sins of, of David. Or maybe we can identify with some of the patterns of dysfunction that we see in Abraham or Isaac or Jacob's families and homes. But those families, those, those patterns don't have to define us. Wherever we've been, God says, I have come to redeem you. I have come to make all things new. First Peter says this, For you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God's redemption comes through what Christ did. It's not based on our goodness. It's based on God's goodness. It's not based on our work. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. And the cross is where God ultimately takes the things in our lives, our sins, our flawed lives, and he, he turns them into something new. He transforms them. He makes us new creations. You know, one of the first verses I ever learned as a kid, probably because it was easy to remember, it's short, but also because it's a powerful verse, is 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she, is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. Ultimately, that's what Christmas is all about. God, through Christ, offers his mercy shows his faithfulness, shows his love that redeems us, that restores us, that saves us, and that makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, O God, that you can identify with us because you were born into a a family history and with flawed and sinful people, just like us and just like we know as well. We thank you, O Lord, that, um, that you are constantly at work to redeem all things, and that because of Christmas we can have hope and love and joy and peace, forgiveness. We can be made new. Lord, as well, we are reminded from Christ's genealogy of, of our responsibility and our call to have a heart for others to have our hearts broken by the things that break your heart, uh, to respond to those around us who have needs, who are lonely or sick or hurting or less advantaged. So, Lord, we, we pray that we be people who are marked by that as well. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our lives. And again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he makes all things new. Amen. As we conclude our study,